This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm going to have a conversation with Matt Donnelly, who's an advanced musculoskeletal physiotherapist working in an emergency department of a large public hospital in Melbourne, Australia. And we're going to find out more about Matt's role and this role in general and what Matt does and how this role, which has only really existed for the last 15 years or so, has changed how emergency departments work and how having an advanced practice physio on site can help with things such as reducing surgical waiting times and many other benefits for people. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. I'll be honest with you, I was speaking to Matt today and asking him all the questions I'm going to ask today on the podcast. And I thought, why don't I just record this and share it with you? So I'm sure you'll appreciate it. It's Matt's really interesting guest, and we're going to have a really good conversation. So stick around. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So as I've already mentioned, today I'm talking to Matt Donnelly from Monash Health in Melbourne, Australia. So Matt's working with us here at Monash Uni Physiotherapy for the next six months or so as part of a partnership with, with Monash Health, where he's developing his physio education experience and sharing some of his experience with us, which is going to be really good. And Matt has post-grad qualifications. He's got a lot of interesting clinical experience that I'm going to let him tell you about. And let's get him on right now. Matt Donnelly, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thanks for having me, Luke. That's a pretty big build-up you gave me there. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to have a good build-up. So, um, <laughs> so this is the shortest run-up to a podcast. We, we were having this conversation an hour ago, and now we're doing a podcast. So I really appreciate your willingness to come on and share this with everybody. And it's really good to have you in the department. and and good to meet you last week. This is only your second day with yeah. us. So yeah. welcome on board. Thanks for having me. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit more about you, your background and interests and experience and qualifications. Let's do your bio first. And yeah, sure. Um, so I graduated from La Trobe University at the end of 2012. So I've been a physiotherapist for uh, 10 years now, which has been pretty exciting, pretty interesting. I've spent uh, my whole career in the hospital system. I've done a little bit of private hospital work, but mostly in the public uh, health system in Victoria, which has been really cool. And it's given me a lot of exposure to lots of different areas. I've worked in cardio, musk, neuro. I've worked in community rehab. I've worked in um, rural uh, home-based services. I've done oncology rehab. I've, yeah, lots and lots of different stuff. So uh, last five years or so i've been involved in musculoskeletal roles in hospitals um culminating in the uh, advanced musculoskeletal physiotherapy role which i've been working in for the last couple of years which has been great um mm. uh the advanced musk physio role has been really interesting in particular i currently do um primary contact uh emergency department work uh so i'm a primary contact clinician as opposed to a secondary contact clinician which is what a lot of other hospital hospital physios are um, which means that uh, after a person gets triaged, I'm the first clinician to see them and assess them. Um, and so I really get to use my diagnosis skills in an emergency setting, which is really cool. Um, and then I also work in some uh, advanced practice musculoskeletal uh, physio-led surgical screening clinics. So uh, screening people who are on a wait list for, or hoping to be on a wait list to get either a hip or a knee replacement done or 
um, are having uh, spinal issues and have been referred to a neurosurgeon, uh, just two examples of the clinics that I work in personally, but I've got colleagues who work in shoulder screening clinics or soft tissue clinics or lots of other advanced practice clinics um, at the hospital. Let's talk about those, the um, surgical screening clinics. So they, they obviously have a bit of an opportunity there to make a real impact on quality of life and in getting mm. someone who needs the surgery urgently and involved with the triage as well medically. Or, or so let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah, or even sometimes the opposite. It's uh, opportunity for somebody who may have been referred to a specialist for an opinion about a surgery, but they actually haven't really given conservative management a good go yet. Um, the amount of referrals we get uh, where uh, a patient's seen their GP, they've had an X-ray that shows they've had arthritis, and they've said, right, off to, off to a surgeon you go. Um, and then where that first point of contact, and uh, unfortunately some people can be on that wait list for quite some time before they get to us, but as we all know, there's a huge body of uh, evidence supporting conservative management of osteoarthritis in hips and knees in adults and a big body of research behind uh, exercise interventions, weight loss interventions, um, as your first line of treatment really before considering surgery. And that's brand new information to a lot of people. And so- That's these, interesting. Mm. Yeah. So these clinics can be a really good opportunity to discuss with patients, what treatments have you tried already? Um, what are your symptoms like? What's going on? Um, what do you do for work? Um, how, how much is, uh, is the arthritis impacting your life? And then having a really good conversation with them about where to from here and for a lot of people it might be oh you've never seen a physiotherapist before cool let's try that let's try losing a bit of weight let's try do some exercise let's try all these other things and if it's no good and it's not working and the symptoms are deteriorating by all means we'll um we can refer on to one of the orthopedic surgeons for uh more consultation about where to from here but uh it can be a really nice way to yeah give people options and treatment choices because there's some people coming to our clinic who didn't realize that that was an option Mm. What's it like for those people who are um, referred? They probably they believe they're going for surgery soon. They're referred to a uh, surgeon, and then they end up in a different model of care. Yeah, it it, it can be interesting. It depends on um, sometimes who their who their primary doctor is, or um, their own health literacy can determine a bit about it. How much research mm. they've done. Some people have had family members who have had the operation before, or um, so different people come into it with different expectations. They always get told they're coming into an, a physio-led clinic, so it's not a surprise that they're seeing us, but um, it's definitely a really good way of us helping go through the waiting list because not everybody that has arthritis needs surgery. So mm -hmm. if we can help filter out the patients that don't need it, then that really helps uh, reduce public hospital waiting lists. And so the people who really do need it will hopefully get seen sooner. Mm. I think that's a really nice explanation for uh, not necessarily, I was going to say students and new grads, but not necessarily for me as well. For anyone who hasn't been in that public health position, perhaps even working in that role that you're doing, you may not actually understand that impact that you have, not just on people, but for example, on the waiting lists and the overall flow of what's going on. So tell us a bit more about that role. So what was it like before those, so an advanced muscular uh, physiotherapist is your role mm. and you've got a, your title from your you've got your postgraduate qualifications that you needed to get that role and your mm. masters um what was it like before in emergency departments before we had so, a role like that so uh for those who may not have ever worked in an emergency department before um and 
obviously every health organization runs slightly differently, but um, I work in an area of emergency called fast track. So it's for uh, the idea is we're trying to get people in and out as quick as possible. It's for uh, acute injuries that we think are going to be short term, they're probably not going to need to stay overnight. It's things like broken bones, cuts, uh, lawn mowing accidents or the like, or well, other okay. bits and pieces. Yeah. I, <laughs> so, I mow my lawns every week. Um, what, what should I not do there? <laughs> um, the sharp spinny things are to be avoided as, <laughs> yeah, a, okay. as a general rule. Yeah. I got that. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's the type of people that we think can be in and out of emergency in a span of a couple of hours. and. Uh, traditionally that is staffed by doctors, but, um, what the role, uh, that I do in ED is because my whole background and training is in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. Um, it's recognizing that I've got experience with muscle, bone, tendon injuries. And so any of those that come through the door, if I can take the pressure off the doctors by seeing those patients and using my clinical experience to help manage them appropriately, it means the doctors are freed up to treat the other stuff that comes through emergency like uh, concussion or head injuries or yeah. um, all the other stuff that we really need their expertise on. But if we can help out with one area, then that really uh, frees up the rest of the system to um, be well-staffed and be able to do things. And it's, it's even interesting there. Um, Monash has also got some advanced nurse practitioners as well, working in a, a similar way that they have an advanced scope of practice role. So, they can order imaging, they can order tests, and depending on the conditions, they can manage patients independently, just like we can. Mm. Uh, it's all done under the framework of working with whoever the senior doctor in charge on the day is. So um, I'm still doing a bit of training and upskilling that area. So I still check uh, if I order any x-rays, um, I'm usually running it by the senior consultant in charge uh, just to make sure we're not missing anything. And um, so there is that really nice support framework there as well. You're not just by yourself. Um, yeah. It's very, very much a team role in a team environment. But uh, if we can lend our clinical skills to help, then that really helps flow through emergency as well. Yeah, um, yeah. That team, that importance of that team environment is something that's come up again and again, particularly on the new grad episodes mm. on the podcast with our um, new grads, many of whom I, already, I know as former students talking about their just the importance of learning how to work with a team. So what's the professional mm. relate? What's the importance of the professional relationship there with the doctor in your oh, role? So, so, so important. Like yeah, I, yeah. we work together yeah. every day. If we mm. didn't have a good working relationship, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they, they, they need to trust us to be able to look after the patients we're looking after. And we need to be able to go to them when we need to escalate things or if things are coming up in our assessment, they're going, Oh, I think this is, this is actually showing signs of something a bit more sinister than just regular back pain. I think we actually need to investigate this further. I'm worried about these red flags. Uh, do you agree? And if so, could we please get some more thorough investigations done for this patient? Because this actually sounds pretty serious. And mm. they're really, really good at being supportive and helping with that. So, yeah, talking to your colleagues is so important. It's probably one of the best things, uh, best skills you can develop as a new grad physio is getting to know the people in your workplace and, uh, yeah, trying to build a working relationship with them. Yeah. So having that that real knowledge of the role of the doctor, you know what the scope of what a doctor can do and what they can't do and, and vice mm. versa. Or even probably you- just as importantly is knowing my own scope of practice and mm. knowing my limitations as a clinician because there's 
definitely in this role, there's things I, I'm, I'm not allowed to do. There's things that are outside my scope, the things that are inside my scope. And so really being aware of my own limitations or even my own, uh, even area of expertise in particular clinicians. If I see something I've never seen before, um, I'll be asking questions. I'll be talking to the doctor. I'll be talking wow. to colleagues. Like, there's always opportunities to learn. So I think not just knowing what other people can do to help, it's really important to know uh, and have that self-awareness and self-reflection. What don't I know? <laughs> what, what, oh, yeah. what, what, what can I learn? What can I explore more today? When you first started, was it more difficult to ask questions? And was it, did you find it took some time to learn the boundaries of the role and you didn't want to seem like you didn't know things? We, we were talking about oh, that in the past with... Yeah. Um, I was really lucky. I, my first uh, role in a hospital was at a um, semi-rural hospital. Um, which everyone was lovely. I had a really supportive uh, team. The allied health staff I worked with, the OTs, dietitians, were all fantastic, really easy to talk to and ask questions. Um, and even the medical and nursing staff, again, really supportive and happy to answer things. There were some fantastic consultants out of that hospital who were really happy to talk to even me, a new grad physio, and impart their wisdom experience. So I, I got lucky in that respect. But uh, definitely, it was very, very normal to have the um, nerves walking into your first full-time job for the first time and trying to figure out who everything is and um, where, to, where to go for stuff if you need help. I want to just ex explore that a little bit more because it's such an important thing. Asking mm. questions. Okay, we, we, we all agree then we need to ask questions. Sometimes there's some barriers to asking questions. We've discussed that previously here, but um, what some strategies, tactics you can use as you getting into a role like this how do you how do you break the ice with people yeah, and their respect yeah. and how do you how do you ask questions well do you think something i've always noticed that goes down really well no matter what workplace you're in is being proactive with stuff so yeah. um if you can get on the front foot early and even if you can demonstrate that you've had a go to the best of your ability to solve your problem whatever it is or solve your conundrum but then recognize your limitations, people are a lot more on board with helping you fill in the gaps. Yeah. So if it means you're going to a senior physio, uh, say you have a question about uh, BPPV assessment and treatment, for example, you're like, look, I've gone over my notes from last year, I've watched all the videos, I've done the training manual from this course, but I'm still really struggling with this concept. Do you think you could help me or show me something? And that comes across a lot more professional um, and a lot more um, of someone that's engaged and wanting to do better than if you just roll up to your senior one day, I haven't got a clue about this, can you show me? <laughs> Which, depending on the environment and system, that's still not the wrong thing to ask or to say, but if you can demonstrate that you've been proactive about things and you're really trying, then often people are a lot more inclined to help you. I'm sure we could apply that to physio students as well on the mm. clinical rotations and so you've done 10 years of as a clinical yeah. educator yep tell us about so that and so tell us about your experience there yeah so uh, almost uh, as soon as i finished i ended up supervising students uh again working in a small rural hospital there weren't a big pool of clinical educators to choose from so i've yeah been teaching basically my whole career uh, which has been really interesting um and it's always good um, getting to know students when they come out, watching them grow and develop and learn things and getting more confident as they go through placements is always cool to see as well. Mm. Um, and I guess uh, 
it's always the students that are more proactive that do well and it's the ones who uh, come ready to learn and ready to ask questions and ready to um, really throw themselves into the clinical placement are the ones who do quite well. Mm. Um, and it's always really, it, it's fun working with those students because they're interested and you can have great discussions and uh, yeah, it's always, it's always really enjoyable being a clinic, cl clinical educator in those times. Mm. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of a student who is feeling underprepared. I didn't say imposter mm. syndrome because that probably that phrase is going yeah. out of fashion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, don't we all have that? But they're, they're feeling maybe the first clinical placement, they're feeling a bit underprepared and who doesn't? Mm. And they're also feeling that nerves are a big factor here. Yep. And your advice here is even if you feel that way, still be proactive and then still yep. ask those questions. But yep. what, what tips could you give the students who are feeling nervous? Oh, the best thing you can do is review the course material that you've gone through. So if you know that you're going to be working in a acute orthopedic ward for your next placement, and you've got uh, you've only got a couple of days between your last placement and your next placement. As nervous as you might be, if you're feeling a bit underprepared or a bit underdone, even just spending some time going over your lecture notes and going over what you think might be common conditions you're going to see in X block, that little bit of extra prep time you do might be the difference. You might if if you spend a bit more time going over your content, then that might be enough to help you be confident enough on day one. And then once you get onto the ward or get into the clinical placement and really see what conditions are around, what conditions are really common, what conditions are not really, really common, that can really help you prioritise what you need to revise, what you need to be stronger at. So if you walk onto an orthopaedic ward that specialises in joint replacement surgery and you're going to see a total hip and a total knee replacement every day for the whole of your placement, make sure you're confident with that stuff. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Um, and so... I guess paying attention to the placement you're on and what is normal for that placement and then making sure you're good at that stuff is just such an easy thing to do. If um, And that if you know the content well, it's going to help your nerves because you won't have to be thinking or second-guessing everything you do it because you're familiar with the content. And that's honestly the biggest part of it is making sure you're comfortable with the content as well. And then you can focus on all the other skills you need to learn on placement, like talking to patients, talking to nurses and doctors and clinically reasoning through problems. But if you haven't got that basis of the basics, then it's going to make everything much harder. Mm. And that for all falls under the uh, heading of being proactive that you mentioned mm. before. And, you know, we could add to that being honest as well. Because yeah, yeah we all want each other to do well and we're all in the same team, we're all in the same healthcare team. So just mm. like, well, I'm nervous, but th this is my plan. This is what I've been doing about it rather than just saying, yep. well, I'm nervous. What's next? Yeah. Sure and you would a, appreciate that. Yeah. Mm. There's, there's a big um, ethos that gets thrown around uh, education in a workplace environment. Um, and a common phrase you might hear is adult learning uh, or adult learning principles. And what it basically means is that you're, you're a professional now. Like you, you need to take responsibility for your own stuff. If you're not good at something, get better at it. If you're struggling with something, read up about it. If you uh, want to know more about something, go to a PD course about it. Like the, um, it's really uh, great when you're at uni and you have access to some fantastic lecturers and tutors and some really good supports, which is amazing. But once you finish, it's it's all, it's all on you. And mm -hmm. if you want to be if you want to be better at something, you um, 
you have to go to, you have to go find it you have to go chase it and uh the people that do well in a professional environment are the ones that are proactive with that stuff and the ones that seek out opportunity to learn more or to if they're not confident with something work harder on it um if that makes sense mm. nothing calms the nerves better than starting and yeah, being exactly. honest and talking to people and having a plan the adult learning it, it, it doesn't just include learning more stuff mm. with the mechanism being well you'll know more then you'll feel more confident and less nervous it, it, part of adult learning is managing your emotions and your your thoughts yes. and, and yep. everything else as well which is something that that you that just develops all the mm. way through school and through university so yeah really interesting also hearing that from you yeah it's also important to know you're not going to know everything and that's okay it's it's recognizing what your gaps are what your area of expertises are um like i've been in musk for the last five years so if i came across a complicated cardio or neurological patient i'd definitely be talking to my colleagues and asking for help because i haven't had much exposure to that over the last few years but that's also really normal in a professional context there's going to be um colleagues who are incredible experts in tendon rehab but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're used to dealing with BPPV patients all the time. So you, yeah, there's opportunities always to learn, but don't put so much pressure on yourself that you have to know everything there is to know about physio. Mm, I think I feel like that's really valuable for students, for new grads who are working in any role, but I find it valuable to think about that myself and people at all levels are going to be thinking about, well, if I'm changing careers, I could apply that to that as well. So it's really good. Let's talk about knowledge and skills. So as yeah, a sure. clinical educator, give us, and that there's, there's, you could really say all the knowledge and skills, but just sort mm. of following on from that previous comment, what do you think if you're a student, you're going out, perhaps you're doing a musculoskeletal placement, what would be the most important foundational knowledge and skills? Yeah, beyond, sure. Beyond just learning the, the total nips, the, the total, um, 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 knees and hips or whatever's on that yeah. ward at the time. Yeah. I guess it's really funny because it's not like a theory or it's not like uh, you must learn this miracle joint mob that helps 90% of patients. That's not what uh, I'm going to say. It's, yeah. um, it's interesting. Uh, I'd say it's the ability to listen to a patient and understand what they think their biggest concern is and from that, how you can help them. So, yeah. um, which sounds simple, but it's actually a, it's a real skill. Mm. And it's one that I see a lot of students struggle with because they're, they're trying so hard to remember all their assessment questions they need to ask, all the special tests they could possibly be doing, all the other assessment and treatment interventions they need to be doing. But when it comes down to it, if you can prioritize one or two really key things that the person has come to you today with and said, I'm stuck, I need help with this, or say they come to you and it's six weeks since they've had a shoulder operation and they still can't lift over their head. And then um, they're also complaining of severe pain and they're not sleeping. If those are the two most important things to the patient, if you can find ways to address those things, you're going to get better engagement with them. If you can help them within the session, even better, they're going to feel better. They're going to be able to engage with their rehab more. Um, so just trying to really pay attention to the patient and then even better, if you can help address their concerns, then that's the that's the most important thing you can do. 
That's that's gold. How do you figure out the biggest concern for somebody? You can ask them directly, but what are some yeah, ways you that can. you can you can figure it out? Yeah. So sometimes um, I like uh, reflective listening with patients. Um, so a technique you can do is once you've finished your examination, your so you've asked your subjective questions, you're asked your, your objective questions. You can kind of come back and say, "All right, from our assessment today, I've hear that you're really worried about your sleep." you're not coping very well with the pain at the moment and you're really struggling to brush your hair at night. And those are the things that are bothering you the most. Is that about right? And then the patient go, oh, no, I'm not too worried about that. I can't drive my car. I want to drive my car. And then you go, ah, all right, well, let's focus on that. Mm -hmm. And giving that opportunity for the patient to clarify their issues and their problems is a nice way of summing things up at the end before you start handing out treatment ideas that they may or may not be interested in. That's simple, isn't it? And it does involve a pause and, mm. of course, the reflection yeah. and sort of bring that loop of reflective listening and, and then returning to it. And We talked a bit about reflective practice and reflecting on your own practice a lot on the podcast in the past, but reflecting with the patient is a mm. vital skill, isn't it? Yeah. That's a and really it, good one, yeah. And, and it's, um, it's really interesting, especially a common mistake students make is they feel like they can't have silence or they can't take five or 10 seconds to pause to either write something down or just collect their thoughts or they feel like they need to be talking all the time. But a little mm. bit of silence is okay. Because if, if you're just rambling nonsense, <laughs> that's not helpful. Mm. Um, and But if you're really listening to the patient and can demonstrate that you're listening, then that's going to be more valuable. Um, there was a study, um, I can't remember the exact author off the top of my head, but it was something, uh, it was a qualitative survey that was looking at different things that help patients get better or not. And the patient-client relationship was one of the biggest indicators, not how experienced they were or what treatment technique they did, or it was that relationship was a huge predictor of how well they did. Um, I'm sure you've read the paper and can probably... Um, quote me on it. I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but yeah, I just found that fascinating. There's a challenge to, to um, put that into the show notes <laughs> for people. So then, exactly. So there's, um, it's powerful to know that mm. someone is listening to you, and yep. it, particularly when you're in the medical environment where things are scary mm. and foreign and uncertain, and you have a problem that you've come in there about, and then suddenly you've found a connection with a person who's listening to you. And who's hit the nail on the head with that reflective listening and, and has figured out the thing that's of most concern to you. Mm. And then you can return to that and make that one of your goals. That's look, so anyone listening, not just students, silence is okay. You know, it can be powerful. <laughs> yeah. Just having that silence yeah. there and it's a sure sign that you're you're doing something. You might just <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe you're thinking about what the most important problem is, but yeah. Silence is really good for letting the other person speak as well. Sort of, which I'm doing right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and actually recording, we're recording this via audio, not we're mm. not face-to-face. -face, and that's kind of it's it's got its problems doing that because it's it's nice to be interpersonal in the same room, mm. having a coffee together, but you find you interrupt your guest far less often recording <laughs> a video conference. I found it's good. Yeah. So um the really good skills. I'm sure that would apply as well for teleconference and working with people via uh, telehealth as well. Oh, for sure. Way, there's um, problems with it. Yeah, and we did so much telehealth through COVID as well. 
uh, of course, it's nice to be able to see people face to face, but telehealth's not going anywhere. It's mm. a real tool now, especially for patients that maybe live far away or struggle with transport for whatever reason to get to hospital appointments. So it's definitely here to stay and making use of those communication skills over video conferencing is really important to have. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your where you are now. So 10 yeah, years sure. out of your out of university, you've done a lot of stuff. You've done a master's. Um, yes, when did I you just finished. You just finished Last year, yeah. What was yep. it in again? So I did my master's of musculoskeletal physiotherapy through La Trobe, um, That's right. finishing yeah. last year, which is good. Um, it was really interesting in terms of career progression, um, which I can talk about a bit more if you are happy for that, Luke. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. so um, the... Uh, advanced physiotherapy practice role that I'm in uh, through the particular hospital organization that I work with at the moment, they actually have uh, a master's of musculoskeletal or sports physio as a prerequisite for that job. Um, so certain advanced clinical roles in hospital networks sometimes will highly encourage further study or certainly look very favorably on candidates who have evidence of higher study or higher qualifications. But for this particular role, this was a prerequisite. You either had to have finished or you had to be working towards it. So in my case, I was midway through my master's when I applied for and was successful in the role I'm in at the moment. And it was the recognition that I'm doing further study in this particular area that would be really important and uh, for the work that I'm doing, which is great. Um, Combined with that as well, I've had lots of on-the-job training, which has been really, really good, and I've been really lucky to have a very supportive workplace for that. So that's that's an interesting point that you um, were talking about here with it being an advanced musculoskeletal physiotherapist, at least in our system, and there's there's other versions of extended scope roles around the world, um, mm. and some people just do it through necessity in different countries and different systems, but um, this is not a... As, as as much as a, a title and a university degree, it's not. It's no. You um, it's a, it's a role within an organisation, and you've got that yeah. prerequisite to have that advanced training, that master's training. Mm. So it, this this sort of leads me to the the question, or, or back to the discussion about what a bachelor's or even any entry to practice or a doctor of physiotherapy, an entry to practice physio degree, what that trains you for. Um, and and so you're in a really good position to to talk about this because as educators in entry to practice degrees, we're commonly hearing people talk about all the things that need to be taught more and more and mm. need, to, need to be taught to an advanced level by the time people graduate. And we have to push back. And it, it's often from people who haven't actually taught within them. The courses where these comments can get it the most um, uh, polarizing, these debates. Yeah. They haven't actually done any university teaching and training. Um or teaching, I mean, we um, and I've asked Jody this before, and on a previous episode, and other guests, what is the goal of doing a entry to practice degree? Yeah, yeah. So what do you well, think the goal is? What What's the goal of your first physiotherapy degree? The uh, common discussion I have with other educators at work is always when we're talking about students: is would you be happy working with them next year? So yeah. the and the basic premise is that is are they safe? And what uh, safe in of itself is a really interesting concept. What I mean by that is, uh, can they treat the basic patients effectively without uh, unnecessary risk or unnecessary danger to themselves or their environment or the patient? And 
Within that, do they recognise their own limitations and where they need to escalate or ask for help? And if they have those two things nailed, then that usually makes a really good colleague because you can trust them and you can trust that they're going to do their job effectively and that they're going to ask for help when they need it, but you can trust them to do the things that uh, they need to do. Um, There's... And even now in my role, I've been out for 10 years, but I'm still learning, still developing. And my senior who's helping with my training, the biggest thing he keeps going on about is like, as long as you're safe and effective, that's our priority. Like you're not going to miss red flags in emergency. You're not going to miss life-threatening conditions because we've really hammered that part of your training because that's Mm. probably one of the most important things in that particular role. But yeah, as long as you're safe and effective, that's probably the priority for graduates. That's it. I mean, you're someone who's practiced in 10 years across, you said, cardio, musk, neuro, community rehab, oncology. I think you listed some other ones as well, right? That's over 10 years. When you do an entry to practice physio degree, Mm -hmm. you will touch on peds, um, geriatrics, so many other women's health, so many other areas that you need to have basic competency in, but not expertise. You need to be safe. Yep. and effective. Yep. And you've, so you and hit you, the nail on the head with that from yeah, our perspective and, as well. And fr- from the other side of the basics, uh, at a graduate level, you need to be able to help your patients. Mm. Um, the, there will always be new treatments and new ways of doing things and there will always be the best, highest level evidence of how to do things. And sometimes that might be someone who's got a lot of experience, might be able to help you with particular treatments or interventions for certain conditions. But as long as you're able to help people with the basic skills you have and able to provide improvement to your patients. That's the main thing. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it's about the patients. It's not about us. Yeah. And as you said, the patient and client relationship is Mm. the biggest determinant of the engagement and ultimately how far they'll go with their prognosis and success. So, and there's so many reasons for that. If you think about it, if you're feeling nervous, and you're doubting all the knowledge you have, if you just reflect on some of Matt's comments and you think about what you need to do, what the goal of doing your undergraduate or your entry to practice training is, one of the biggest things you, you want to get good at is being able to develop a relationship with the person you're trying to help and being able to figure out what their biggest concern is. Yeah. And the all the knowledge and skills that you're learning, they're sort of the tools that you use to do that. Um, and if you're feeling nervous, that's also normal. And mm. if you're feeling like there's things you don't know, that can also be normal as well. Um, yeah. My favourite graph in the world is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Luke, <laughs> yeah. but it's the like confidence versus um, actual knowledge in something and that people's confidence is often very high at the start, but then the more they understand, their confidence drops when they realise how much they don't know. <laughs> and yeah. um, that's actually a better space to be in than to be overconfident without the knowledge to back it up. Mm. Yeah. You've given us some really nice points to reflect on here. And it's not just for students or new grads. It's it's really, I found the conversation was really interesting and, um, and I'm sure everyone else will as well. There's plenty more we can talk about. We've got you here for six months, so we might might have to do this again. (laughs) There's, if you are interested in, in thinking about, say you're five to 10 years out of university and you're sort mm. of thinking about this advanced musculoskeletal physiotherapist role or another extended scope mm-hmm. role, um, people like Matt 
are the, the guys you can talk to. And we can, I can, if you have questions about this, mm. uh, people have started um, sending me more and more DMs and comments, not just the thanks for the episode, I'm enjoying the podcast. I appreciate mm. that as well. Thank you, everyone who sent that stuff. But, and look, oh, go and leave a review and all, the, all of that. I don't, I'm not, that's not what drives me. I'm really just here to produce stuff that is helpful for people. So just, so keep contacting me and saying what you want. Mm. I mean, Jun, who was on last episode, Jun Sung, um, said, I'd like to come on. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not going to say no to to people who have something to say and they want to come on. But more so, if you if you have a question for Matt or, you, or any of the guests, just let me know and we'll continue exploring it in this long form on the podcast. What else would you add, Matt? Any final thoughts on everything um, we discussed? It's okay to not know what field of physio you want to work in when you graduate. That's fine. Yeah, um, that's, a good that's, where, that's where hospitals uh, I quite enjoyed for the rotating nature of the grade one programs. So working in a variety of different clinical areas gave me lots of exposure to stuff. And it honestly took me four or five years to figure out that I really wanted to be a musk clinician. And that's okay. I learned heaps along the way and it was really enjoyable. Um, and yeah. So don't put too much pressure on yourself to have your career mapped out from the year you graduate. That's fine. And lots of people change their minds anyway, so don't get too stressed about it. Mm. And if you don't know about all the opportunities, that's what conversations like this are, like, uh, are for. Mm. Yeah. Um, but lots of lots of things will appear before you as you go along. What you yeah. imagine it is in your early years, it may there may be more to it as you go through. And there's also lots of different pathways to different things as well. So in the... Uh, uh, the advanced musk role that I've got, or the AMPs as we're called. Um, a bunch of us came through the hospital system as grade ones and then grade twos and then eventually into grade threes. And then uh, we've got a couple who work predominantly in private practice that have then transitioned into this role, which has been really cool, having their perspective and experience on things. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways into uh, different career paths if you're interested. Mm. Can people track you down directly if they have questions or you, are you a social media person or uh, i'm not really a social media person but um very happy if they uh if you dm or email luke i'm very happy for him to pass on my details and that i can talk to whoever wants to know more that's an easy way to do it so take advantage of that if you if you like thanks matt very much for this this conversation it was impromptu but um i just i knew that the that you would have some really interesting insights for for listeners and for me. So really appreciate the chat. Thanks for coming on Physio Foundations. No worries. Thanks for having me. So everyone else listening to this, thanks to you. For, like I said before, thanks for your um, DMs and, and emails and sort of guidance for the content that you're enjoying and what you want more of. Keep that coming because um, that's this is for you. It's um, a passion project of mine. It's also related to my work as a physio educator and a physio um, it's something I'm going to keep doing for a while, and but th the episodes are for you. So keep sending me what you think, and let me know, and um, and send those questions in um, for Matt if you have them as well. You can track me down in the show notes. I've got all my details in there. Um, we've got at Periton Physio on all the social media for Susanna and I, and I'm at Luke Periton, and I'll reply. So don't be shy. How's that? careful i'll start rhyming here so thanks matt really appreciate the chat no worries thanks Amy. so until next time this is matt and luke wishing you all the very best with your studying professional development and lifelong learning